the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, podcaster, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. That's if Brexit even happens. I keep reading that the House of Lords is going to block it when it returns there next week for the next step in its parliamentary passage. So, who better to guest on this episode than Angela Smith, aka Baroness Smith of Basildon, Labour's shadow leader of the House of Lords. And from the UK and a changing Europe, Catherine Barnard, senior fellow at UK and a changing Europe, and Professor of EU Law at Trinity College, Cambridge. Catherine and I asked Angela about Labour's plans for the big Brexit bill. Um, We tried to get some clarity on Labour's Brexit position. And we discussed the strange case of Lord Bates, the Tory minister in the Lords who resigned on the spot recently when he was late to the dispatch box. But perhaps the most heated discussion was about which is the best version of a disco classic. So uh, stay to the end for that. If you want to get in touch about anything in this podcast, uh, probably best to tweet me at Political Yeti. I'll be back at the end of the podcast for more ways to get in touch and chat. But for now, here's our discussion. Surely the democratic thing to do, there's been a referendum, the people have spoken, you unelected lords, as you have to be called, even though it's a tautology, should just step aside and let the bill go through with the minimum of fuss. See, that just betrays that misunderstanding of what the House of Lords does, doesn't it? Sorry, James, but I know you don't really mean it. But, <laughs> well, you know, we'll do the same on this bill as we do on every other piece of legislation. And we're not trying to overrule the House of Commons or deny the will of the people. But the standard thing is we're here to use the expertise and experience we have as individual members to make suggestions to the House of Commons. So any amendments ever passed by the House of Lords go to the House of Commons for MPs who are elected to have the final say. Most of the time, amendments and ideas that are suggested from this chamber, from this end of the building, are usually supported by the government, and the government sort of reword it slightly Mm. and bring it back because they recognise expertise. So it's the usual process. So we're not trying to be anti-democratic. We're trying to be helpful. And already the government has said in the House of Commons, oh, there's some things we'll bring back for the House of Lords and look at again in the House of Lords and bring back amendments. So it's, it's just part of the normal process. Don't get overexcited not normal, about is it? it. It's not normal because we've had a referendum on this one. It's not like normal legislation. It but it, because this it we is. know no. that the most people in this country just want it but to we're not, happen. Yeah, and we're not trying to stop it happening. That's not the role of the Lords. But in any contract you sign, whether it's a contract to come out of the EU or to buy a new fridge, you look at the small print what we can do in the House of Lords is actually look at the small print of legislation. If the government gets this bill wrong, and there's actually quite a few serious errors in it, what it will mean is those protections on consumer protections when you're buying a new product, like a new microphone, um, new fridges, fridges yeah, again. Hang on. There's an analogy here about the fridge, isn't there? There's always How is lots... coming out of the EU like buying a new fridge? Because, because once you're out of the EU... Ah. Yep. less protections and the fridge can blow Not up. necessarily, not necessarily, but that's what you've got to get right. You've got to make sure we still have those environmental protections, consumer protections, workplace protections that we currently get because they're in EU law that we've accepted and fought for, that they are in our domestic legislation. And what this bill does, it actually isn't about 
leaving the EU, it's about getting protections into domestic UK law. But what's to stop a government, this government or next government, um, from repealing those protections once they've been incorporated into, into UK yeah, law? Yeah, and that's part of the big issue of this bill, because you can't, one government can't bind another, so if a government in the future wants to change the law, it should be able to do so, but by proper process and primary legislation. At the moment, because of the way they want to bring some of these laws in by secondary legislation, they could be changed in the future, the next day, by the sort of stroke of a ministerial pen. And that would be wrong. So it's about getting, you're absolutely right, it's about getting that proper process in so Parliament in the future can make decisions, not just an individual minister. But this is mad. This is unelected lords. I know it's a tautology, but we have to say it, call you, you that. Tautology yeah. uh, <laughs> to repeat it as well. I know. <laughs> uh, decide, trying to stop the government we're from not... doing stuff by ministerial decree, which is James, also not, not no. very democratic. There's a, no, it's, it's all not mad, isn't no, it? Basically, what we, it's not mad at all. I think it makes perfectly common sense for the House of Lords to look at issues and send it back to the House of Commons for them to consider. No, the House of Lords could never have the final say in legislation, and that's absolutely right. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But what we can do is say to the MPs, have a look at this and think again. It's in, in Canada, they have a not dissimilar system. They have a second chamber that's unelected. They call it the Chamber of Sober Second Thought. Just sometimes governments need that breathing space. What it does, it gives MPs and the government a breathing space. We make them up with things that they haven't considered as well. And lots of legislation, when it gets to the House of Lords, it might have only been looked at, well, half of it been looked at by the House of Commons. Mm. And so by sending something back to the House of Commons, it gets a chance to look at it for the first time, because at that end of the building, the government guillotine and limit the time for debate. It doesn't at this end. So we have a role. It's a limited role, but a limited role that says to the House of Commons... We think there are some issues we'd like you to look at again. That's it. Which, some, which issues do you think that you're going to send back to them? Uh, it depends on how they work out voting, but the issues we're particularly concerned about would look at is the issue about transition. At the moment, there isn't proper legislation to allow for that transition phase. Unless we accept that everything's going to be cut, signed and dealed, and we know where we're going to be at the end of the uh, Article 52 year, um, there has to be a transition phase. And the, you know, Most people, I think even the Prime Minister, accepts that's in place. It's not properly provided for in legislation yet. There's what's called the Henry VIII powers, um, which is really a truncated process where things don't get properly considered. I understand there needs to be a bit of that to get things into UK law, but it's how the point you were making, how you look at them in the future. And maybe Henry VIII's powers, it's probably useful for our listeners um, to, to know what, what they are. It's I'm sure, do you want to explain them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, think of Henry VIII and then think of Parliament, I suppose. It's, it's well, well, I come back to... the wives, actually. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and worry about them. Uh, it's the stroke of the ministerial pen. It's about having due process that things could be properly considered. Under Henry VIII's powers, the use of what's called, this, is, this gets very techy, statutory instruments. Mm. And statutory instruments, government brings them forward, sends them to both houses, they can't be amended, take it or leave it. But most legislation gives MPs a chance to debate it and make suggestions for changes, so we think that's more appropriate. We're also worried about Northern Ireland. And I was a Northern Ireland minister. I spent three and a half years as a Northern Ireland minister. And I have to say, the issue of how the border remains a soft border and doesn't go back to a hard border with you know, all kinds of patrols, um, customs. Balloons. They're going to do it with hot air balloons, aren't they? Well, they can explain how that would be done. So far, the government... mm, Well, we'll wait and see. But if if the government has genuinely got a technological way 
of ensuring a soft border in Northern Ireland and abiding by the Good Friday Agreement that brought peace to Northern Ireland. They need to share it and tell us what it is. At the moment, they're saying, we won't be in any form of customs union, which was an extraordinary decision, and we're going to have a soft border in Northern Ireland. I don't know how you do that. So the government needs to say how they're going to maintain the Good Friday Agreement at a soft border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. And the other, I suppose the final part would be the role for Parliament and how Parliament's engaged and votes on this issue. So there's a lot of constitutional issues that will come up. What about the Charter of Fundamental Rights? Yes, of course, that's another one that we're quite concerned about. It's interesting, isn't it? When David Davis took his Prime Minister to court, he relied on the Charter of Fundamental Rights to do so. And now he's saying it shouldn't be in. It's the only part that's excluded from the legislation that's coming through. So, yes, those are sort of the broad areas we'll be looking at, others that will come up. And hopefully some of them, the government will say, actually, you've got a point, we need to look at that and come back with suggestions of how to deal with this. have you seen signs of the government showing sensitivity to this? Some. Um, you know, we remain to see more. But on the issue of devolution, for example, the government is still talking to the devolved parliaments, saying they're going to come forward with something. Yeah. So there's still discussions ongoing about that. Um, and the ministers have said there's issues they're going to look at. So in a sense, it's early days for them yet. Just on the, the legal issues, Catherine, are you looking forward to this? All those lawyers in the House of Lords fighting over this for months. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be a dream come true. All these really techy technical discussions late into the night. It'll be brilliant, isn't it? Because this, this, this bill is actually a technical bill. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. Because it, to put it really simply, all the withdrawal bill do, is doing is essentially cut and pasting all of previous EU law and making sure it's part of UK law. <laughs> you make it sound so simple, though, when well, you say that. Uh, 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 no, <laughs> the concept it's, is. The concept, concept is, is very it's, simple. It's, but the way it's being delivered is increasingly controversial and this is where you've got to be pragmatic too we've just been talking about these henry VIII clauses highly controversial but on the other hand the civil service think they need about a thousand si's statutory instruments yeah. to be passed before we leave and that and they can't possibly all go through as primary legislation as acts of parliament so it's got to be done by second legislation it's got to be done by henry the eighth powers the question is how much scrutiny are they going to get because what at first sight might be technical changes can actually hide actually some really quite significant policy issues. There's also, I think what worries me, is about the possibility of making a mistake. Mm. When you're dealing with that many statutory instruments, which are going to be important pieces of law that would have been in primary legislation mm. in other circumstances, and they're going to be brought across, and I, you know, I don't disagree that many of them have to come into law originally um, through statutory, secondary, Henry VIII powers, if you like, it's what happens next in terms of if they're amended later on, the point Catherine made earlier. But I'm worried about the potential for just making a mistake, getting a number wrong, all wow. those kind of issues. And that's why we're saying you know, there should be some consultation, not on whether it's you know, the right thing to do, but just on the accuracy of the detail. They won't make any mistakes in the Lords, because if they do, they'll resign. Any minister who makes a mistake has to resign on the spot. That is the new rule, isn't it? That was a bit, uh, bit fierce of him, wasn't it? His, uh, I did jump up and say, you know, your thing of leaving now, an apology would be enough. <laughs> that was weird. That was Lord Bates. But that was nothing to do with Brexit, did it? He, just, he was just late to answer a He question. was late. And actually, I think he showed a bit of um, courage, actually. He was obviously upset at being discourteous. He was obviously upset at not answering a question. 
and uh, he felt that was so rude he had to go. And he, you know, I jumped up and said I thought you know, it was my discourtesy and he didn't need to resign, just say sorry. Having said that, I have to say the irony of all that was that he is one of the, I would say, fairly few ministers that really does put some effort into trying to give a proper answer to a question. Some of them will say, that's our policy, that's it. He is somebody that the House has some regard for because he, he cares about the issue he's working on and he really does try and give a full answer. And that's why you heard up when he said, I'm going. Unusually, people shouted out, no. no. Oh, no, it was <laughs> that, brilliant. It was a classic not, House of Lords reaction. No, well, no. you say it's a classic House of Lords. I'm not sure many ministers would command that. No, but when they all go, oh, you get that, oh, there's noise. You've got a bit of an impression here about the House of Lords. I think I have to do something about this. And this is a good thing. This is a great <laughs> thing about the House of Lords. Just on that, you talk about Lord Bates being one of the good guys, if you like, to paraphrase slightly. We've had two days of debate. Who impressed? Who was good? Who wasn't? A stand-up one I thought was Lord Lisvane. Lord Lisvane in a previous life was uh, Richard Rogers, who was the the senior clerk in the House of Commons. And he, um, in order to make a point, he came talked about his uh, his three aunties taking him to see a film. Yeah, you have to read it and take too long to explain. (laughs) Um, But again, he was trying to bring it home. I thought on the Conservative side, I'd say Chris Patton, who mm. made what I thought was quite an unexpected speech from him, who obviously felt very strongly about it. And he's again, um, alongside me, he's tabled um, a motion on the Northern Ireland issue. Oh. Well, this is the thing, on this issue, it must be easier, you know, you say, you sort of, if you agree with the speech, you're more likely to like it. Yeah. On this issue, because it cuts across party, it must be easier to like some of the people on the other side. It other is, benches. but you can recognise when someone's got real skill. Mm. And the point they're making isn't, you know, I don't like Brexit or I do like Brexit. I thought the debate went a bit beyond that because mm. I'm, you know, I don't need to know who who supports yes. Brexit and who doesn't. We've, you know, we've done all that. This is techie. This is detail. This is actually going to try and get the law right, and it's important we do. So, I generally was impressed with the debate as a whole. Confess there might have been one or two that I've say, missed. Come on. Any crazies <laughs> to look forward to in the in the coming weeks and months? There must be people in the Lords who have been waiting. I mean, like they were in the comments, we've been waiting years for Brexit and they're just going to go off on one, aren't they? But interestingly, what I thought was impressed me on this was there are those that have been waiting years for Brexit. You know, when people mm. say, oh, there are people who still support Remain, they're not going to give up. There are people who never wanted to be in the EU and never gave up. Yes. And some of them are here in the House of Lords. Yes. So don't blame for that. But what was really interesting was people who were pro-Brexit who said agree with the bill, the government's right on this, I support Brexit, but this bill isn't really fit for purpose and needs some amendment. Because there is a tension, isn't there, in yes. the bill, that yeah. you know, all the talk about take back control, the paradox is that the bill is about taking back control, essentially, to the mm. executive through these Henry VIII's powers. And so people who talk about take back control, there's a degree of forked tongue, but equally there are some of those on the mm. Leave side who actually recognise that very clearly, and they... And they would like Parliament to, to do more. But the, the size of the exercise is just huge. It is massive. And whether you're talking about agriculture or fisheries, whether you're talking about the economy, it's on every issue there are lots of smaller things to be taken into account. And that's why I think this bill, if they're bringing issues into UK law and legislation through, then in the future, what's the process if government wants changes? But there's issues like how we deal with security issues, how we deal with terrorism, how we deal with policing. It's just absolutely massive. This is just a small part, the techie part, but the detail is really going to matter, possibly in this bill, more than some of the others that are coming through. You need wise heads and cool hands to deal with this because you just need to be really thoughtful 
Um, and I worry that some of the other legislation coming to us in future won't be, won't be properly prepared by the government. And that's a big worry when you're dealing with these kinds of issues. All right, you talk about the government being unprepared. Mm. Um, then we look at the Labour Party. Now, obviously, you're not the government. But yet, uh, any do you know what Labour Party's position is? Of course, I, mean, I do. Mentioned the various things you're going to try and change about the bill. For example, what about the transition periods? What what's, what's Labour's position on the transition? How long do you want the transition to be? To be honest, it's as long as it takes. But it has to be a finite. But I, if you get on with the negotiations, people normally talk about being able to do that within two years or so. Mm. But you have to have something to transition to. Yeah. So your transition period, you can do that on current terms. You stay as you are at the moment. Yeah. And some of the things have already been worked out for the transition. So I think the government are pretty close now to get an agreement um, on EU nationals living in the UK. What I'm not happy about is where they've got so far on UK nationals living mm. in the EU. I think the government haven't got that sorted out at all. What's that the most vexed issue of all, which is free movement of persons? Mm-hmm. What, what, would, what would you see as your ideal solution post-transition? It's hard to know because you can say what's the ideal, but it's all about negotiation, mm-hmm. what the negotiations are. The government has taken this very hard line on free movement, and yet when we were in the EU and you could actually have some few more restrictions than we had, we chose not to. Mm-hmm. And there is that distinction to be made, I think, between free movement of people and free movement of labour. Are we really saying that in the future we don't want people to come here and work? You know, look at the impact on the health service. So all those are about negotiations, but we have to talk about reciprocal arrangements at all times as well and how it impacts on our citizens that are living in the EU and also how it impacts on people who want to go and work in the EU. I think you make an interesting point there because one of the criticisms of what Theresa May negotiated in December, which was pretty pretty strict, and that was that... She's rather sold the pass of British nationals living abroad because it wasn't in her interest to negotiate a, a decent deal for them because she wanted to be so tough in respect of EU nationals here. And so British nationals abroad feel let down. Well, they should do as well. I know, and I hope negotiations haven't closed on that. The trouble is, I don't think Theresa May has got a very strong hand in negotiations. Trying to keep up with what the government policy is. Who is it? You, know, you have one cabinet minister says one thing, the tax on Philip Hammond last week Mm. when he said, you know, fairly fairly moderate changes and differences on trade between us and the EU, trying to sort of reassure um, British businesses they don't have to relocate, they can invest. I've never seen such extraordinary criticisms of a Chancellor of the Exchequer from his own cabinet. Um, Do you admire his resilience? I do, actually. I hadn't thought about it until you said that, but you do, because I think he's obviously the closest to business and the economy, um, and he's trying to sort of I think bring the Conservative Party with him, but every time he tries to sort of take a fairly light approach, a fairly sort of moderate, careful approach, he's criticised for doing so. And I think being careful at the moment is quite a sensible thing to do. So isn't there a, a gap for Labour to set out a very clear policy? So we want to be in the customs union, in the single market, um, you know, where we'll make a big, lovely offer to EU nationals here that will be reciprocated to British nationals over there. Um, and yet it feels... You might disagree, but it's not clear what Labour's position is. See, I do disagree, because we haven't been doing negotiations, and um, Jeremy Corbyn... No, no, no. I don't... Is that an acceptable response? I think it is an acceptable response, because... And we'll be developing policies as we go along, because all the time, 
it's changing and it's I think it's very difficult at the moment to see where the government is and where negotiations are but we're continually discussing how we respond to this and how we deal with it um, I think when the country's in a very difficult position the country's divided we haven't just said keep everything the same we've said we want to have proper negotiations and you have to look at what's on offer as well at the moment my fear is that the EU and Barnier and people are looking at the British government, seeing divisions and seeing an opportunity. And that's where I think we, you know, when we get into government, we don't know what stage things are going to be at. And that's, that's quite alarming. But I think we're very clear. We would not sell jobs down the river. We want the economy to be stable. We don't want a cliff edge where people sort of fall off out of the customs union single market. So transition, you stay in the same terms as now, and then you negotiate to see how we get the best deal. Wouldn't you have a better chance of getting into government if you set out a clearer position instead of saying, well, we're not the government? I mean, I, I well, get that. We're not the government. We don't have to have a very clear position. I'm, I'm not saying did, that. I said, we're have a not. Chance of getting no, it? I thought what you, you're paraphrasing quite wrongly. I didn't say we'd have to have a clear position. I said, we're not the government. We're not, you know, we're not in charge of negotiations. We have always said that during the transition, we remain on current terms and then we will negotiate where to go next. I'd like to see us getting as close as we can, actually, to the position we're in of a customs union of some kind, um, especially if that's the only way to preserve a soft border in Northern Ireland. On the single market, I think there's discussions to be had on there, but we know we can't remain, although David Davis did try to promise that we'll be on the exact same terms because we're leaving, but we're up for negotiations and discussions on that. And we have to look at the impact of the economy. All we're seeing from the government is they do this modelling of what the different outcomes are and then try not to share it with anybody. No, they any modelling, or have they? Well, <laughs> it's like the asses- assessments. I just think I'd like to see a lot more information out there. These so-called impact assessments, which aren't impact assessments, where you had David Davis saying they were in excruciating detail for the Prime Minister to come through. Have you read any of them? Well, the ones that came out last week were excruciating for the government. Well, <laughs> they showed that the, the early, economy is going backwards, whichever way you and cut it. At every single point, we've had to extract that information like you're extracting wisdom teeth. The government has to drill down and get that information and make it public. But you should. actually, is, is there an argument that... Because we're leaving and because people want to leave, actually having economic case to say actually you're going to suffer, they know they're going to suffer, so they don't need it. They want just people to get on with it. And get, and I think on. there's, I do think there's a real, people demand, people are saying get on with it. And you can hear that from people who voted remain and voted leave. Mm. There's a lack of confidence the government really has got to grips with it. You say people know they're going to suffer. People were told that if they voted Brexit, they would get £350 million a week extra for the National Health Service. People haven't expected to suffer. It was unclear exactly what the details were. So I think your point about, yes, we know we're leaving, but it comes back to the small print again. What's on the small print of that contract and the agreement and the treaties? And that's what the discussion has to be about now. And that's why it's so important that the government provides the information they say they have, but they're scared to show anybody. They have to be dragged kicking and screaming to share any information. Just on the Labour position, do you recognise the accusation that Labour's facing both ways on this, that it's confused? I mean, the day we were recording this, we've had a story that Richard Leonard, your leader in Scotland, says the EU has been bad for wages and bad for workers. And yet, in the Lords, you're trying to get workers' rights enshrined 
in the withdrawal legislation. Yeah. It looks a bit confused. I don't think Richard Leonard would ever suggest that we shouldn't have those rights in this law. Whether people are pro or anti the EU, they want to have this mm. legislation passed properly. But why would you be surprised that there are different points of view in the Labour Party about the EU when there are different points of view and every family in the country has different points of view, every political party has different points of view? You know, what you have to try and do is represent and understand what is happening here and also how, if we're leaving, that's accepted, but you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, as my grandmother would say. You actually try to ensure you've got a sensible Brexit. And I don't like hard Brexit and soft Brexit. I think there's a pragmatic Brexit and there's an extremist Brexit. Best thing! Oh. Worst thing. What's going to be the worst thing about Brexit? I suppose the worst thing for me was Donald Trump supporting it, probably. That was quite alarming. Um, <laughs> so that'd be one of the worst yeah. things about Brexit. What, because everything um, Donald Trump supports is bad? More or less. What are you going to do when he comes over on his state visit? I don't think I'll be. Uh, it's not a state visit, is it? Well, we it's don't not know. A state we don't visit. know what it's no, going to be. I think I might see a state visit now. Um, I think one of the worst things about Brexit, and something you've touched on already, was the campaign itself, where people were sort of told this £350 million, which even the people that said it are trying to disassociate themselves. So that feeds into, I think, something in politics that isn't very pleasant. Of, of a distrust for people. So for me, that's one of the worst things that's happened. And this whole issue about our nationals in mm. the EU and EU nationals here, it's created a kind of mood and attention of feeling that I find uncomfortable. What's going to be the best thing? Because there must be good things. I think one of, the, one of the best things to come out of this is we have having proper discussions about the kind of relationship we have with the EU. Because there has been, I think, an arrogance in the past. We're in the EU, we're staying, everything's fine, and not taking on board some of the concerns people had, like immigration. We are actually having a proper debate about those issues. Now, we might not reach the conclusion that I want or you want or somebody else wants, but the proper debate is taking place for the first time in a number of years. So for me, that's something that I welcome. And when we're, you know, we'll be recalibrating our relationship with the EU as we leave, Perhaps it actually leads to something that is more sensible and understanding on both sides. And, uh, right, let's see if I can get it right this time. In the unlikely event, this podcast has failed to prove sufficiently enlightening. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. I want to understand Brexit. What would you recommend to understand Brexit? Yeah. Well, I went for a song. Good. And it was "Don't Leave Me This Way." <laughs> uh, no, hang it's on. It's a song. Uh, I was going to say yeah. there's different versions of "Don't Leave Me This there's, Way." Yeah, I know, You've but got um, the communards. Yeah, I was going to go Harold for the Melbourne and the Blue one. Notes. That's was a it, radical choice. Was it Harold and the Blue Notes? I thought it was. Ooh, ooh, I don't think I it was. Lead with my chin, yeah. oh. Oh. <laughs> I check that. I'd Google that later. Yeah. Um, I thought it was. A, I thought it was. I thought it was a female vocalist, but. Uh, oh, there's been lots of versions. There has a lot, but I thought you know. Why don't leave me this way? Just because think before you leave. How do you do this? Don't leave me this way. Okay. Uh, can we he could have breaking be, up is hard to do. Are you going to quote <laughs> from these in the chamber? Can we expect any uh, The only lines time from these? I ever actually quote from songs in the chamber is if I speak on a Friday. 
<laughs> Why don't you make a habit of I do. cutting songs in the So, so far, I've got on a Friday, does your chewing gum lose its flavour on the bedpost overnight? Oh. What was that to do with? That was to do with on litter and rubbish being dropped. <laughs> okay. And you know, put it on the bedpost, not on the, on the uh, pavement. And also when we were talking about voting for young people, and I strongly support votes at 16 and 17, I quoted the late, great Eddie Cochran from yeah. Summertime Blues, I'd like to help your son, but you're too young to vote. Oh, So there's gosh. appropriate times for songs, but, I, lyrics, but I only do it on a Friday. Have you ever been on Popmaster? <laughs> no, but I love it. Like you could it. be handy in a pop quiz. I, I, I was going to phone Ken and say, could I come on, please? But, you know, I'd need to, need to swat up a bit before Celebrity, celebrity Popmaster. Yeah. You know, I, I have the Popmaster. Are you? It came up on my Facebook. Nine years ago, I went on the Popmaster. Seriously? On a snowy day. It was a snowy day. And I was did you win? Yes, I did. <laughs> I did. I Girls allowed. I can't remember the question, but I know the answer was Girls allowed, and that got it for me. If I'm listening in the car, I get them all right. Put me on the phone, and they'll be all wrong. And then you did three and ten on the real thing. <coughs> The real thing? We were the real thing. How much? They only had like three hits. I don't know. Not that, not that I'm bitter about it. But, um, Catherine, what would you recommend? Well, we've been talking Ireland. Yes. And we've been talking soft border, hard yeah. border. And Ireland is going to take a huge hit with Brexit. And Tony Connolly has just been yes. writing yeah. um, a book. He's, he's the man from RTE. He is. He's been mm. doing some very good pieces. And so he's just published this book called Stunningly Brexit in Ireland. Um, and I think it was called The Dangers, the Opportunities and the Inside Story of the Irish Response. Right. And oh, so right. I think this is a good place to try and get to understand the other side of the border. We talk a lot about the Northern Irish side, which is our, yeah. our interest. So. I suspect Catherine's is more use for mine, seriously. She might, I might find the book more useful than she finds the song. Well, <laughs> it's a bit of everything. We need a bit of light and shade. Light and shade, that's what you come here for. Where else do you get a peer of the realm and a Cambridge professor discussing Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes? Nowhere. That's where. Um, that's Tony Connolly's second appearance on the list of recommendations, but I think it's the first appearance for the Communards, possibly the last for both of them. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a future recommendation is Catherine Barnard's new solo podcast. Yes, she's got a side project, and it's called At... 2903CB 2903 being the date we will leave the EU CB being her initials search for it on SoundCloud she's uh, very clever and she doesn't talk about pop music that much at least not as much as you get in this podcast depends what you like really doesn't it so you've had your primer on what to look out for when the Brexit bill returns to the House of Lords next week where it'll remain till about May going through the various stages if there's any particular peers you want me to interview in that time, get in touch. I am at Political Yeti on Twitter, or you can get the UK and a Changing Europe team on Twitter at, uh, at UK and EU. The email is UK in a Changing Europe podcasts at gmail.com. That's UK in a Changing Europe podcasts at gmail.com. And my website is james-miller.com. Please get in touch with any thoughts or comments. Please also rate and review this podcast on your favoured podcast platform. It helps us to spread the Brexit knowledge, and that can only be a good thing. The music on this episode was, again, Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. Come back in two weeks for another episode. I've got 
three guests to choose from. I haven't decided which one you'll get next. But come back on February the 28th to find out who it is. They're all good. I promise you that. In the meantime, thanks for listening. This has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast with me, James Miller, from the UK in a changing Europe, supported by King's College London and supported and funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. Thank you. <laughs>